Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We have John Hood with us. John has been a frequent guest on our program for years and uh, always sort of gives us uh, interesting insights. And John, this week, a very historic week, we had a former president of the United States indicted. Um, Truly uh, unfamiliar grounds. a lot of people have different takes on what is happening and what is likely to happen. And of course, this is only one of the legal problems that the former president has. But so sort of give us, if you would, uh, uh, an overview of what you have seen and what you expect to see uh, involving uh, uh, former President Trump and uh, this indictment and the other legal problems that he is also facing. Don, you, you're certainly right that this week didn't lack for political stories. And in North Carolina, the, the, the indictment of Trump was only the beginning of the week story. And by the end of the week, we had other news that took over. But let's talk about the, the Trump indictment. I don't want to pretend to be a lawyer uh, because I already have a couple of brothers who are lawyers and they would call me on it. But I have talked to or read, read enough from attorneys who have practiced criminal law, both on the prosecution side and on the defense side, to be uh, highly skeptical of the indictment of Trump on the charges in New York. Um, no matter what you think of any human being, any any American, whether it be just someone you know down the street, someone you've never met, or the president of the United States, uh, they are all supposed to be treated equally under the law. They're supposed to be subjected to criminal jeopardy based upon the evidence, not based upon who they are. It strains credulity to imagine that the prosecutor of New York would have indicted a non-president, former President Trump for these charges because they're such a stretch. And so I think that the reaction from the Republican side, whether the people who really are Trump boosters and want him to be nominated again, and those who are skeptical of Trump and those who are flat out opposed to Trump, for the most part has been dismay that these charges were filed. On the Democratic side, though, I've also talked to a number of people who are passionate anti-Trump Democrats who are also concerned that these charges were filed because they do see the other legal problems that the former president faces, the events uh, that obviously led to January 6th in Washington, his attempts as a uh, after the election in 2020 to try to, quote, find enough votes in Georgia, uh, other issues related to his uh, handling of classical uh, of classified information, or at least his obstruction, his alleged obstruction of justice in the investigation of those classical doc, uh, uh, classified documents, those seem to be much more serious situations, serious allegations that uh, could support uh, real bona fide uh, prima facie evidence of a felony, and a lot of people are concerned that creating a lot of sympathy for former President Trump with these initial charges in New York may actually hurt the case later uh, if other charges are filed against the former president that have more uh, apparent validity. So that's the take that I gleaned from talking to or watching what other lawyers say. And I'm not going to try to wade more deeply into the details of this, though I'm persuaded that that the New York charges are a bit of a stretch. 
Of course, we don't. We have all not all the evidence has been presented. The defense hasn't well, been presented. Well, that's the other thing that was a surprise to me. Of course, I'm not following it as as deeply as uh, as maybe a lot of people are. But it, I was sort of surprised that apparently um, the indictments don't actually spell out the case. The second thing I was surprised at is the apparent next step in this is in December. Yes. I mean, you know, are we going to be, we going to be, what's going to happen between now and December on this particular case? Well, and of course, yeah. as you brought out, some of those other legal matters, which may be more serious, will probably come up during that period of time. But I, I was, I, so. I, the December thing surprised me. I didn't know. I, I, that's the first time I'd heard that. Well, Criminal cases can move slowly, and in particularly in New York. Uh, but here, here's what I would say about that: that there is a uh, idealistic political take on this, and there's a cynical political take. And let me give you the cynical political take first. The cynical take is this unambiguously helps Trump in the Republican primary. It kind of rallies people to support him, which is why Democrats wanted to do it. They want Trump to be the nominee because they feel like President Biden or whoever the nominee of the Democratic Party is, and I'm not so sure it's Biden, frankly, but whoever the nominee of the pres of the Democratic Party, but that that Trump is the easiest uh, opponent, and so they want the rally around Trump effect that we're currently seeing. They want that to be reasserted at the end of 2023, going into the primaries, so that Trump will win the early primaries and be nominated again. That's the cynical view. Um, you can believe that it's a good idea, even if it's cynical. Uh, I don't. I think that if if you're a Democrat and you're really uh, anti-Trump and you're trying to get him renominated, you're playing with fire. It just strikes me that's irresponsible. But that that's the cynical take. The more idealistic take is that the prosecutor in this case, Bragg, um, is a is politically elected. In of course, he's, he's democratically elected in New York. And uh, because he's a state prosecutor, this isn't the U.S. attorney. And uh, he is doing what he believes uh, any prosecutor in his situation would do. He's going to file the best possible charges and let the jury sort it out. And he's not thinking about the effect on national politics. That's the idealistic view. Still not particularly idealistic, but it's better than the cynical view. I tend towards the cynical view, I'm afraid, that I think that Democrats are pretty happy about what happened with this. They they want to see Trump uh, sort of become the giant tree that leaves all other Republicans in his shade. And this is going this does that for the next several weeks. And maybe these other charges, if they come in Georgia, in Washington, D.C., maybe they will come later this spring or summer and that the entire news cycle of 20 political news cycle of 2023 will be heavily con uh, constituted with Trump stories, and this will play the Democratic uh, advantage. I mean, that's the argument. I've heard it. I, I think there is a lot to it. And I think it presents Republicans, including people like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, perhaps the senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott, or others that may get into the race and have a serious shot at getting the nomination themselves. Uh, Mike Pence, of course, the vice president. I think it leaves them in a very difficult position. They can't uh, cheer on the the, uh, the indictment of Trump because they probably genuinely feel like I feel that whatever you think about Trump, the, the indictment's kind of flimsy. As you say, they didn't even the, the the specific 
series of felonies that he's being uh, charged with involve falsifying records to to uh, hide an underlying other crime. And the indictment doesn't spell out what that other crime was. So we don't even know what this what he's being charged with, honestly, and neither does he. And as an American, you have a right to know what you're being charged with. So I think that there's a lot of problems with it. But politically, the Republicans uh, face a dilemma. I think DeSantis handled it as better as as much as as well as any of them could have, which was to say that he was concerned about the indictment. But he also didn't know what went into paying hush money to a porn star. He's trying to emphasize the less savory aspects of the the, the case that the Trump supporters are offering here. Uh, but I, I think it's a challenging situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Also, just as an American, just as someone who cares about the future of the country and the many significant and, and important issues that face our country, uh, it is sad that this is going to dominate, has has dominated for many days and will in the future dominate news cycles that ought to be devoted to things more important. The other news, of course, this week that broke shortly thereafter is the fact that uh, uh, Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence now will be, uh, has agreed to testify uh, or will not fight the, the, uh, the, the request for him to testify. Um, what do you make of that and how, how will that affect things? Because Mike Pence is right in the middle of it all. He is, and he presumably knows firsthand what conversations he had with the former President Trump and other people around Trump. Uh, and I think that Pence handled this correctly. He correctly asserted privilege regarding his role as president of the U.S. Senate. So the vice president serves in the administration of the president, as we know, but also serves as president of the Senate. It's a it's a mostly ceremonial position that he gets to vote. He or she would vote in the case of ties. But in the case of the Electoral College meeting, he was serving as president of the Senate. In the U.S. Constitution, there is a privilege extended speech and debate clause that is extended to members of Congress that I think properly understood means they cannot be subpoenaed to talk about how they carried out their speech and debate responsibilities as members of Congress. The open question was whether the vice president is really a member of Congress and can really assert the speech and debate and debate uh, clause privilege. And Pence asserted it and the judge appears to have accepted it. So Pence is not going to be required to testify about conversations involving him carrying out his duties uh, as president of the Senate, presiding over the the Electoral College procedure. But he will be subject to the subpoena, will have to testify about interactions he had with the president before that moment, before he was presiding officer of the Senate. Now, maybe there's some area there, but the the reason Pence is not fighting the, is not going to appeal is because the judge gave, gave the decision exactly the way he saw it. Pence was not saying he shouldn't be subject to to subpoena, uh, that he can't be compelled to testify at all. He was never asserting that. He was only asserting he can't be compelled to testify regarding events when he was acting as a member of Congress, as a presiding officer of Congress. The interesting thing about this is, uh, of course, President Trump is saying, of course, it's politically motivated, but Mike Pence is now a candidate or appears to be a candidate. So will he be politically motivated in his testimony about Trump? <laughs> well, everybody who runs for office has motivations to win the office. <laughs> exactly. That's my point. But, 
But I do think that it would probably serve Pence poorly to testify in any way other than what is true. Because yeah. unless it's a completely private conversation between Pence and Trump, there were probably lots of conversations where other people were involved or listening in or there were contemporaneous notes taken. So I can't believe he would falsify a testimony to try to help his presidential campaign versus Trump. It'd be too dangerous. I mean, he it's, it's in his political interest to tell the truth is the point I'm making. Well, and of course, he has a high degree of, uh, of, of, of believability because of the way he has acted and, and his performance. So it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that. He is uh, very calm um, and very thoughtful in his comments. And so that's going to be very interesting. Of course, the other interesting thing is when will this testimony come out and how it might affect uh, the, uh, the, the various issues that you're talking about during the next couple of three months this is just this is just un, unfamiliar grounds for us all and it's going to be really trump, interesting trump has dominated the the national news cycle for much of the last what since 2015 and that's yeah. continuing yeah our guest is john hood and we've uh, gone through this uh, very eventful week we're going to sh shift in the next segment of carolina newsmakers to talking about the governor's race in north carolina which is beginning to uh, 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 we're able to focus on it because it's not that far away now. And we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. One in three adults in America have pre-diabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers, and uh, I, I want to talk, focus this segment on uh, the upcoming gubernatorial race. Governor Cooper has served his two terms and will not be able to run again. Uh, the forerunner right now on the Democratic side uh, appears to be Josh Stein. Um, on the Republican side, the two candidates, uh, neither of which have announced, uh, to my knowledge, uh, Mark Robinson, who is the current lieutenant governor, and uh, a lot of people are mentioning Dale Falwell, who is the current state treasurer. So, John, give us your uh, view on what's going on in, in that race and and when will that begin to take shape, and how do you feel like it's going to come out? 
Well, Dale Falwell, the state treasurer, has in fact announced that he's running for governor. He did that several days ago, speaking, I think, in Forsyth County, where he was a, a, a longtime elected official before he became state treasurer. He was represented the county in the state legislature for a while, and he was on the school board there in Forsyth. Uh, so Dale I missed Falwell, that. I did not know that he had announced. I'm yeah, sorry, he, I missed you know, that. Lots of other news has happened since then. It's hard to it's hard to to wedge a, a gubernatorial announcement in in between all the other news that's been going on. But uh, Mark Robinson is expected to announce later this month uh, at a speedway in in I think Alamance County. So both of these candidates will by the end of April be officially announced uh, candidates for governor. The primary will be next spring. Uh, will there be other Republicans besides Mark Robinson and Dale Falwell? I don't know. Uh, you hear rumors here or there. It's not obvious to me that that will occur. Right now, Mark Robinson has a significant edge in name recognition among Republican primary voters. Neither of them is all that well known in the general public, even though Dale Falwell has been now elected twice statewide to state treasurer's office. He's probably better known to the general public uh, than Mark Robinson, at least in sort of people who aren't political junkies. But within Republican circles, Republican primary circles, uh, Robinson has a bit of an edge at the moment. But I think it's I think it's still an open question. Some people disagree and think that Mark Robinson is already too far ahead, that Dale Falwell couldn't possibly catch him, couldn't possibly make it a race. I disagree with that because I just don't think Mark Robinson has yet been really tested as a candidate in a competitive primary like this. Um, he did run in a competitive primary for lieutenant governor, but it's hard to get attention to a primary for lieutenant governor. Uh, the gubernatorial primary for the Republicans for an open seat for governor of North Carolina next year is going to get a lot more attention than the previous lieutenant governor primary in 2020 did. So I think that there are some unanswered questions about Robinson and about Falwell running for governor. So I, I'm, I'm more open to seeing that as a potentially competitive race than lots of other people are. As far as I know, on the Democratic side, there won't be a significant Democratic challenger to Josh Stein, the attorney general. There was some talk about Michael Regan, who was uh, President Biden's EPA administrator, who did work for Governor Cooper here in North Carolina, running the analogous group, the, the department uh, that regulates the environment and, and so and natural resources. So people have been talking about Michael Regan as a potential candidate. I don't I don't think that's going to gel. And there have been a few other Democratic names thrown out. I don't think so. I think Josh Stein has already lined up most of the uh, political talents and activist groups. And I think he's already gotten, in fact, he's already been endorsed by the North Carolina Association of Educators, NCAE, uh, the teacher organization. Uh, he was just endorsed for governor. I don't think he's made it a formal announcement for governor, but he has been endorsed for governor. So. Um, doesn't mean necessarily be nominated. I just don't see any evidence that anybody else is running. Uh, so in, in the general election, I'm not sure being endorsed by the NCAE is particularly valuable. But in the Democratic primary, it probably is. So um, John, think, let's, let's talk a little yeah. bit about the issues that, that uh, and first of all, uh, let's talk about the primary. The issues in the primary may very well be different than the issues in the general election. So what will be the issues that... Uh, Mark Robinson and Dale Falwell will be uh, facing to uh, Republican and independent voters who might decide to vote in that race. What will those issues be, in your opinion? 
I think in that the in the Republican primary, you can already see with Dale Falwell's announcement and Mark Robinson's recent comments, I think there'll be at least two themes. I think for the Mark Robinson campaign, I think Robinson will will emphasize his profile as someone who will fight for conservative values. He will talk a lot about emotionally laden issues, uh, the transgender athlete issue, uh, probably gun rights, abortion. He will talk about issues that have a lot of emotional immediacy for blocks of Republicans in the primary electorate. Uh, Dale Falwell, on the other hand, is going to argue about experience. He's going to he's going to argue that the governor's job is not being a U.S. senator or being a member of the legislature. It's not about voting on an issue. It's about administering a government. And he will argue that he's got that relevant experience, that he served in, uh, he ran the employment security under former Governor McCrory, so he's run a state agency. Not only has he served in the legislature and been a policymaker, but he's been an administrator serving his eight years, uh, his, well, soon to be eight years as state treasurer. And that will mean that he is qualified to be governor in a way that Mark Robinson is not. Robinson, having been a complete neophyte before he was elected lieutenant governor in 2020, and lieutenant governor doesn't have much in the way of administrative responsibilities. So I think Falwell will argue, I'm the right choice if you want someone to actually be in charge of state government, charge of the executive branch of state government, have that relevant experience. Plus, I've been a policymaker. Robinson will argue I will fight for you. I will fight for your principles. I think those are the different themes of the two campaigns. As far as specific issues, I mentioned several that will come up, like abortion and some other matters like that. Education will come up. Both candidates are likely to agree, though, on lots of other policy issues that matter to Republican primary voters. They'll agree on um, taxes and spending. They'll agree on school choice. They'll agree on... Uh, some of those value questions that I just mentioned. Uh, so I don't think it'll be a huge ideological difference. I think it will be a stylistic difference between the two. I think that will be the theme that Dale Falwell leans into, arguing that he's the right candidate to take on Josh Stein in the general election, and even after, if, assuming he wins, then be the governor. And Mark Robinson will emphasize that he represents the grassroots, that he will fight for the, the, the passionate issues that, uh, of the grassroots. Okay, so the registered unaffiliates, a large number now, have the choice of voting in one primary area or the other. So uh, when that primary comes up, do you think they will choose to vote in the Democratic primary where it actually appears to be uh, already decided? Or will they swing over and elect to vote in the Republican primary? And if that's the case, who benefits? Well, I haven't seen any polling about this, but my supposition, having watched these kinds of trends over many decades now, is that, yes, if there's no Democratic primary of any consequence and Josh Stein is obviously going to win, some of these undecided voters are not undecided. Some of these independent voters who tend to vote in primaries will be more often going to choose a Republican ticket and vote in the Republican primary. I think that will be to the advantage of Dale Falwell. I think he is more likely to appeal to independents who lean Republican or to independents who are genuinely neutral than Mark Robinson. Uh, don't have a lot of specific evidence for that. That would just be my supposition that actually Dale Fowler would want a larger, relatively larger electorate in the Republican primary in 2024. And Mark Robinson would benefit if the electorate was narrower. 
That would be my guess. And that could even become a actual strategy of Falwells to try to encourage lots of these unaffiliated voters to go out and vote in the primary for him. Yeah, uh, that that would make a lot of sense. Uh, that would make a lot of sense. One other big news this week, of course, was the fact that the Republicans gained a supermajority in the House after a uh, uh, a member of the General Assembly flipped parties this week. So talk about that. And does that really make a difference? I'm glad you asked that, because for all of the fervor that this has generated, and I've watched it play out in the state media, I've watched it play out in the national media. This became a, a national news story in a week that was otherwise good for Democrats. This was a bad news week for Democrats in North Carolina with Trisha Cotham the Mecklenburg County representative changing from Democrat to Republican. So I've been watching all this played out and all the invective. I watched the press conference from uh, Church of Cotham and the Republicans talking about her switch. I watched the press conference of Democrats uh, pledging to take her out uh, and calling her a traitor. I don't think this is as consequential as many other people do. Uh, Trisha Cotham is still going to vote as Trisha Cotham is going to vote. I don't think that because she changed her party registration from Democrat to Republican, that she now has taken on an obligation to vote for bills that she would have previously opposed. I don't think that uh, the Democrats had her vote locked down in the first place. We already saw that she was willing to cross party lines to vote for some measures that she believed in. And so while I'm not saying it's irrelevant, it's certainly a consequential event, but it's not that important in the whole scheme of things. I mean, Trisha Cotham is not obligated to suddenly change her opinion on abortion or some other issue. I've seen Democrats uh, sort of terrified that now that there is a official Republican supermajority, that there will be all of these draconian uh, policies enacted on abortion or other matters, as if Trisha Cotham previously was obligated to vote with the Democratic caucus, and now she's obligated to vote with the Republican caucus. She was never obligated to do either of those things. So I, I'm not trying to discount, it's a, it's a significant event, if you've been around North Carolina politics long enough, you have witnessed other party shifts. Uh, the most consequential one that I can recall, this really was consequential, was 20 years ago when there was a Republican from Forsyth County, Michael Decker, a conservative Republican. The In the, tw in the 2002 midterm elections, the Republicans got us in a narrow 61-59 uh, majority in the North Carolina House. So they were looking forward to electing a new speaker and being in charge of the state house. But what happened is Michael Decker was bribed, thousands of dollars passed to him at an IHOP, at an International House of Pancakes. He was bribed to switch parties to the Democrats, which created a 60-60 tie, and that led to a coalition government that essentially put the Democrats in charge of the House, even though Republicans had won the recent elections. Now, that's much more consequential than this. It really did determine who the Speaker of the House was and what happened in the House what, what issues were allowed to be brought up, who staffed all the committees. This was a very consequential change 20 years ago. Also led to felony convictions for Michael Decker and for the Speaker of the House, Jim Black, that bribed him. So I also had criminal effects. <clears throat> but my point is that was a much bigger story than this one. This does create an official supermajority when previously the Republicans were one vote short. But as we've already been seeing, the Republicans already had not just Trisha Cotham, but several other Democrats who on particular issues, like the, the bill to toughen penalties for rioting, for dangerous rioting, that got a number of Democratic votes. 
uh, a recent gun bill got some Democratic votes and Democratic override. Well, there was an override, successful override, because some Democrats, including Representative Cotham, weren't in the chamber. So my view is it's not unimportant, but its significance has been vastly exaggerated in, in, in the last several days. And, and I think it doesn't really do us do anybody any good to treat this as if it has suddenly changed everything about North Carolina politics. It really didn't. It's important for Trisha Cotham. It's important in some ways for the way the North Carolina House is governed. But it doesn't necessarily tell us that there was some gigantic sea change in the constellation of forces for or against particular abortion bills or particular LGBTQ bills or other some of the other things that I've seen the national media speculating about. They don't know any better. But this North Carolina media, North Carolina politicos do. Yeah, I, I would agree that the national news uh, put far more emphasis on it being transformational than what uh, we all in North Carolina, uh, I think even uh, Democrats and Republicans view in North Carolina, they, they have, share the same view you have. Our guest is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. And uh, we will be back with more right after these messages. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with John Hood on Carolina Newsmakers. John, of course, is president of the John William Pope Foundation. He's been a frequent guest on our program. And uh, 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 we are always glad to have John on because he his thoughts are uh, well uh, organized and help uh, bring out different aspects of the news and uh, shine a, a different uh, view of uh, that uh, I think is always necessary. We we like to have people representing all political views on our program, and we uh, I, even though I get some mail from time to time that say I have guests that lean one way or the other, we try to balance it off. And and uh, we've always felt like on um, Carolina Newsmakers that we uh, do not try to guide our guests into making uh, statements that are are uh, uh, ask questions that lead them into situations that they have to. Uh, try to establish a policy or a belief or so forth. We we usually let them have a little bit of uh, latitude, and we have always done that with John, and he's always been very reasonable about it, I might add. 
he's never tried to uh, take advantage of that. I don't believe that's my opinion. Uh, well, I appreciate John, that. Uh, b- before we get back to talking about issues, you're always working on some uh, very interesting projects. What are you working on right now? You're- well, I've been writing a series of historical fantasy novels set in early America. I have two of those novels published. The third book is in production now, and that will be published next year. And these are stories. The first book is about the American Revolution primarily. The second book, uh, which was called, uh, the first book was called Mountain Folk. The second book, Forest Folk, was largely about the War of 1812 and the Trail of Tears. The third book is called Water Folk, and this will be largely about the Texas independence movement, the the, the Alamo, and then the subsequent uh, American-Mexican War of the 1840s. So this will depict many other events, but uh, the, the wars tend to be a big part of the story. One of the books I'd like to see you do, it would be based on the Battle of Kings Mountain, which is... Uh, uh, well, that's in my first book, actually. Called- yeah, I actually depict the Battle of Kings Mountain in my first book, Mountain Folk. Um, I did I not depict, know that. I, I depict have not the other mountain men gathering in what is now East Tennessee and Southwestern Virginia. I depict them marching through the mountains and stopping at various places. I depict them assembling a cow pens and then ultimately going to uh, Kings Mountain to, to the battle, charging up the, the plateau. I depict the entire battle. Now, I have lots of historical depictions in it. But there's also some hellhounds that breathe fire and some other magical creatures that are part of the story. But it it helps to make certain kinds of points I'm trying to make about American history. It's symbolic. For for years back in the 1950s, Kings Mountain had an outdoor drama called The Sword of Gideon, Mm. which uh, was about the Battle of Kings Mountain. And uh, it did pretty much the same thing I'm hearing you say that you did in your book. Uh, but uh, by the way, if you have never been, and I'm sure John has, but uh, if our listeners have never been to the Kings Mountain Military Park, it is extraordinarily well done. Uh, it is a national military park, which is a little different from a national park. But the uh, museum there uh, is well done and uh, uh, makes an interesting one day visit. If you're looking for something to do for one day, I would suggest that you go to Kings Mountain. It's uh, uh, right on the South Carolina border, of course, uh, the, the park is, uh, I think the military park is more in South Carolina than it is in North Carolina. That's but, true. Uh, there it, is also a South Carolina park near the near the military park, and this is more of yeah. a traditional park. So you can, you can actually do both things. You can go to the military yeah. park, you can walk the battlefield itself and read the markers and see lots of interesting things. And then you can actually go to the South Carolina park where there is some historical buildings, I believe, and a big yeah. field can play in. I've done all of these things. Well, it, it, it's a great trip, and I think it's under-publicized. I think it's a it's a great visit. So if you're looking for something for a family trip, uh, one day or less, if you're in the Charlotte area or going to be in the Charlotte area, I would suggest going to the Kings Mountain National Military Park and, and uh, spend a, plan to spend a day. You can spend an entire, well, I'm talking about an eight-hour day, uh, but uh, it's it's very well done. So much for that. Okay, <clears throat> moving on. Let's talk about the General Assembly and what is going on in the General Assembly in this session. Uh, what has happened so far and what do you anticipate happening in the remainder of the session? The most consequential thing is always the enactment of a budget, state budget. 
in odd number of years, and this is an odd year in many ways, including numerically, um, they pass a two-year budget, and then in even number of years, they come back in a somewhat shorter session, and they adjust the second year of the two-year budget. So this is the, the, the passage of a two-year budget. The House just passed its version of a budget. It has a, a substantial uh, increase in spending, though that's partly because inflation is so high. They have The House and the Senate together have negotiated over the course of time what amounts to a cap on annual state spending growth that stays within a combination of inflation, which this year is rather high, and population growth. So the House and the Senate have already agreed to the number. So it's just a question of what their respective priorities are going to be. The House plan, which was enacted or was just passed the House, and now the Senate will take up and do their own version of the budget over the next several weeks. The House plan has significant pay raises for teachers and, and state employees. It has a some acceleration of tax cuts that are already built into current law. So there'll be additional tax relief on top of the baseline. It has a significant appropriation into what's called the State Capital and Infrastructure Fund, SCIF. This is something they started several years ago to sort of uh, guarantee a certain amount of money goes to capital improvements, either new buildings or new facilities for universities and community colleges and state agencies. Or, and I think this is at least as important, repairs and renovations of existing buildings. So the amount that will go into this, it, there's already a statutorily required amount of, I think, a little over $3 billion or something like that that would go in over the next two years. And the legislature is going to add another $1.3 billion to that over two years. So there's a lot of money going into capital improvements, both new buildings, which some of these institutions really need new buildings to keep up with, with some, some of their needs. And then there's actually a lot of repairs and renovations that need to be done across state government and various agencies and departments and even local governments. They also put a billion dollars into clean water projects, uh, wastewater treatment and clean water projects. So there's a lot of sort of heavy capital investment in this budget in addition to pay raises. There's also uh, some other policy changes in the budget. Uh, but the, the main thing for me are these basic numbers. You've got a spending increase that is not above inflation and population. You've got significant over two, two years double digit increases for a number of state employees, teachers. And you have, uh, as I said, the acceleration of some of the tax cuts that are already built in. Right now, North Carolina is set to pull its personal income tax rate down uh, another point or, or more. And the corporate tax will go away entirely by the end of the decade. So the House plan preserves this or even accelerates it in some cases and makes some other tax changes that I think will improve North Carolina's competitive position. Uh, others disagree, naturally. But the Senate is probably going to come in with some different priorities. And so we'll have to see how that works out between the two uh, chambers. Some of the issues that have even been filed under separate bills may end up getting swallowed into the budget negotiations at the end of the legislative session. For example, the House and the Senate, there, there have been bills proposed in both chambers to uh, advance school choice. Uh, senators, the, the Senate bill will expand the current Opportunity Scholarship Program, make it easier for families to qualify for it, higher income families, uh, not as much of a requirement that families transfer out of public, transfer their kids out of district run public schools in order to qualify. So there'll be 
additional school choice options available under the Senate bill and House legislation, whether that will end up being hammered out and be separate legislation enacted by the chambers or whether it'll end up being folded in the budget, we'll have to see. But I think the budget bill is significant. I also think I mentioned this earlier, Don, but the bill that's already been enacted, which I'm very glad about, is this rioting bill. We know that whether it be the events in Washington in January 6th of 2021 or events around the country, or even events here in North Carolina where we've had protests that in some cases devolved into riots that damaged property and endangered people, uh, people attacking police stations and attacking policemen, police officers, and other kinds of destructive behavior that is not simply politically uh, expressing your political views, but is actively rioting and destruction of property. That has now become a much more serious crime under a bill that both chambers enacted and the governor uh, was not able to successfully veto it, so he didn't try uh, because they had a supermajority in both chambers for the rioting bill. So that's already been enacted. So has a bill that got rid of what North Carolina did for many decades, which was the pistol permitting system. You could go and buy a rifle or shotgun, and you still undergo the appropriate background check, of course. But if you're going to buy a pistol, you had to also get a permit from the sheriff's department in your county and then go to the store and then go through the background check again. So the legislature got rid of that and made some other changes in gun laws, including uh, some promotion of gun safety. Uh, the, the governor did veto that bill and the legislature overrode it. As I mentioned earlier, in this case, it wasn't, there were Democrats who voted, I think, for the original bill. But what happened was it wasn't the Democrats joined with the Republicans to override the governor's veto in the North Carolina House. What actually happened is several Democrats were absent, including Trisha Cotham, were absent on the day of the vote. Three of them, in fact, none of them said they were, quote, taking a dive. They were, they had, I think Cecil Brockman, who was a representative, uh, said that he had to go to urgent care. Trisha Cotham had to go to a previously, previously scheduled hospital visit. And Michael Ray, who's another Democrat who sometimes votes for Republicans on issues like that, he had a family emergency come up. They weren't there. The bill was therefore passed. It was the, There was an override of Governor Cooper's veto. Democrats were absolutely apoplectic about this. Progressive activists were furious. They were calling for Cecil Brockman and Michael Ray and Trisha Cotham to be somehow punished, taken out in primaries. They were so angry about it that it may have been, the reaction to that event may have been one of the things that tipped Trisha Cotham over into actually ship, uh, switching parties. She may have been, she said that she had been considering this issue anyway, that even when she got back to Raleigh after 10 years, she had been in the legislature some years ago for 10 years, been out of the legislature. She had run for Congress in the Charlotte area and didn't get the nomination. So she was out for several years. She came back. She came into the legislature at the beginning of 2023. It was, she says it felt like a different place. The Democratic caucus felt like a different place. So maybe she was already going to consider changing parties, but it was this furious reaction to the gun bill that may have tipped it over or at least affected the timing of her announcement. So those are some of the main things that have been happening in the legislature. There are many other bills that have been filed. We'll just have to see how everything comes together. But I am told that they are still on schedule to finish this session uh, in, a re in a reasonable time, that we may, in fact, have a state budget enacted by both chambers, sent to Governor Cooper, uh, and either he vetoes it and they override it or he doesn't try to veto it. 
and that we might get that in place by the end of June. And it's important to remember the story I haven't even mentioned yet, which is Medicaid expansion. This bill yeah, passed both chambers. Up. Yeah, this bill passed both chambers after years of Republicans resisting it. They did, in fact, both pass both chambers. Governor Cooper, of course, has always wanted Medicaid expansion, and so he signed the bill. But the Medicaid expansion bill that they did agree to is relies on the passage of the state budget. If for some reason the state budget doesn't pass, the Medicaid expansion doesn't happen. So I think Governor Cooper probably couldn't stop a state budget anyway with a veto, even if he tried. But now he's not even going to try because it would, in fact, imperil the one thing he can claim to have accomplished this year or maybe his entire second term of any consequence, which is Medicaid expansion. So those are the, the headlines for me for the legislative session. And we'll see what the what the next few weeks and months hold. But that's a lot of news by itself. Medicaid expansion, changes in gun laws, potential expansion of school choice, big budget items that I mentioned before. These are these are major, uh, major stories. Interesting summary, John. Thank you very much for that. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, our guest here on Carolina Newsmakers. We have one final segment, and we will do that right after we take time out for these messages. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them, but I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad, you're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Our guest on Carolina Newsmakers this week is John Hood, who, of course, has been with us a number of times. Uh, John uh, is uh, president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, uh, has uh, also served as chairman of the board of the John Locke Foundation from 2015 to 2021. And amongst other things now, he is uh, teaching a course at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. And of course, he's uh, always writing things. And we've talked about the, the, uh, I guess, fiction books that you're writing right now. Do you have any nonfiction books in in your uh, uh, list of projects that you're going to do, John? Yes, I do, because I need more things to do. So I also have a project. I've been doing a project now for several years, and we may have talked about it before, based at Duke University called the North Carolina Leadership Forum. That program brings together three dozen leaders at a time. We do a statewide version every fall. We do two 
regional versions every spring. So we bring together about 30, 35 leaders, some government leaders, some business leaders, some nonprofit and civic leaders. We talk about an issue of interest. For example, our, our uh, regional programs this spring, we're talking about housing affordability, housing adequacy, which is a big issue in much of North Carolina. But the real reason we bring these leaders together is to build relationships, allow people to learn how to argue with each other rather than just bicker with each other. We think this is an important distinction that you can have a real and productive conversation with people you disagree with without it devolving into name calling and, and idiocy, as we see so much in politics today. So that's a project I've been working on with my uh, progressive counterpart, Leslie Winter. When we did this, pro when we started this project in 2015, she was running the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, a more left-leaning philanthropy, and I was about to lead the John William Pope Foundation, which was a right-leaning philanthropy. So we got together to work on this one thing we agree about, which is that we ought to have constructive engagement across the political divide in North Carolina. Now that we've been doing this for a number of years and have some evidence that our program seems to be improving the situation, we're interested in replicating the North Carolina Leadership Forum into other states, places like Pennsylvania or Michigan or Georgia or Colorado. And to do that, we need a book that describes how this came about, what our theory is for how leaders can help to improve the discourse around the country, and a description of how our program successfully improves the situation. And so that's a book project that Leslie Winter and I will be working on over the next several months. Interesting. Uh, that uh, we probably ought to do an entire program on that sometime because that is, uh, of course, what a lot of people in the middle of the political uh, arena feel like ought to happen, that we ought to have more intellectual discussions uh, debate and uh, reasonable discourse. Uh, John, when you were going through all the items in the House version of the budget and also the proposed Senate version of the budget that is now being considered by the General Assembly, I did not hear anything that you said about transportation. So in this budget, what uh, uh, you might want to go back and tell us how much and how they're viewing transportation, because as we know, uh, the, the uh, road tax situation is is not paying it the way that it used to pay. What so what's going on in uh, in uh, road construction and transportation budget? Well, there there is a lot happening, and you're certainly right that there has been a long term trend of declining revenue from the gas and motor the motor vehicles tax. It isn't, of course, because our tax rate has been lowered. In fact, it went up up a little bit um, in, some years ago, and it was really about the fact that uh, it's good news in a way. It's good news that as the car fleet is turned over, as people have sold over older cars and bought newer cars, they have been buying cars that are more fuel efficient. So they get more miles to the gallon, which is a good thing, uh, usually. And some of them have even been buying hybrids and electric vehicles, which you could argue was a good thing if you want to. I'm not so sure about that, but I'm, I think people should be free to drive whatever car they want to drive. But what's happened by both of those trends, both the fuel efficiency trend, which is the dominant part, but also this growth in vehicles that are partially or fully fueled by electricity but through storage, storage of batteries rather than through motor fuels, um, in that case, you get you collect less gas tax, obviously, per mile that is driven on the state's roads. 
That means that over time, we're simply not going to have adequate revenue flow for people using the roads to pay to improve them, to pay to keep them up, to pay to add roads to pl in places where we need where we have a lot of congestion and we need to improve the the number of need to increase the number of arteries going in and out of major metropolitan areas. So uh, everybody knows this is a problem, and in the past they resolved it by doing things like applying the tax to the sale of cars. Uh, they raised the gas tax. There was there have been some toll projects that have been created, uh, both tolls run by government agencies, government authorities, as in the Triangle or the Monroe Expressway uh, in the east side of the Charlotte area, or the the toll lanes that were put in with a public-private partnership in in the north north of Charlotte on I seventy seven. So there have been tolls. There have been changes in in other tax rates. But in recent years, the decision was made last year, actually, to uh, start increasing the amount of sales tax as collected from just retail purchases to devote more of the sales tax to uh, transportation projects. And the argument is that people buy auto parts and other kinds of supplies to operate their vehicles, and that is subject to sales tax. Maybe that sales tax ought to be uh, transferred over to the highway fund. Years ago, it used to go the other way. We had all these highway needs, but we actually were transferring money out of the highway fund, the highway trust fund, away from roads. Now we're actually transferring more and more revenues into the road system, even if they're not coming from gas taxes or, or car taxes. I think on balance, this was probably the most reasonable solution they could come up with. So that is continuing, Don, this year. There'll be a, a, even more uh, of that happening, sales tax transfer to roads. It's not going to be a long-term solution. We're still going to have to resolve this issue in the long run. I should mention that one proposal that speaks to this that was just filed a few days ago uh, was a proposal to change the composition and the uh, who chooses which people serve on, very, I think, nine different state agencies. One of them is the North Carolina Board of Transportation, which is currently mostly uh, uh, composed of appointees by the governor. This bill, as I understand it, would change it so that most of the appointees would be uh, would be chosen by the legislature. So this will give the legislature more authority over the Board of Transportation, over the Environmental Management Commission, and several other boards and agencies and, and commissions in state government. So that's another big bill that uh, I think was proposed in the Senate. I might be wrong about that, but I know it's already been filed as a bill, and we'll see what happens with it. Naturally, the governor is not going to want to do this. Governor Cooper is not going to be for it. But this could be one of those things. This is really more of a balance of power question between the legislature and the executive branch, where there may be enough votes in both chambers to pass this bill. Now, something like this was tried several years ago when Governor uh, Governor McCrory, the Republican, Pat McCrory was governor, Republican leaders in the legislature attempted to change the appointment powers, reduce the appointment powers for the governor and give it to the legislature. Uh, governor McCrory at that time went to court supported by other former governors, went all the way to the Supreme Court and won, that the, the Constitution requires a separation of powers and the governor needs to be in charge of populating certain uh, executive branch agencies, not the legislature. Now, one might argue the same Supreme Court decision would apply to this new bill. I don't know. Maybe it does. Perhaps legislative leaders believe that the Supreme Court, as, as it is now constituted, might see this issue differently or at least see that these boards are different from some of the other boards that were previously litigated. So I think that's another big issue to watch whether, obviously when you have a legislature under the control of one party 
and the governor under control of a different of the other party, there's going to be a lot of tension between the two branches. That happens. It's always going to happen. But even when the Republicans held all three, even when the Democrats held the governor's office of both chambers of the legislature, there was still fights about the relative power of the executive and the legislative. And we're going to see that play out again this year. John, this is maybe an unfair question, and uh, it, it's kind of a loaded question, I guess. Where do you go? Where does John Hood go when you want to find an unbiased account of the news? Because obviously it appears that most of the cable news channels um, lean one way or the other in their reporting of the news. Uh, so what? where do you go when you want to find out what you feel like is an unbiased account of what's happening, where you get a complete background. Well, there's a lot, a lot of questions. things where I'm not sure I can find something that is genuinely unbiased. But what I what I would argue for is diversify your diet. So I'm not I wouldn't suggest everybody should just eat greens all the time. It's good for you. Eat more spinach. I mean, it's good for Popeye. It's good for everybody else. Eat more spinach. Actually, what I'm you not really sure need about is that because I'll, I'm not real sure about that because olive oil was obviously very thin. I'm not sure that she ate a healthy diet. I, I don't think she did because I never saw her eat any spinach. I always saw Popeye eat the spinach. Oh, that's true. That's but true. the point Go, I'm making I, I is that, right that's ahead. okay. If you want to learn, I think the only way to be a good citizen today, to be an informed citizen who participates and votes in a good faith way, I think you've got to consume a lot of different kinds of news sources. For example, at the national level, it is simply not the case that there's no one out there reporting the news. There's a wealth of good news reporting from the, the major national papers. Like if you want to get a good balanced diet, you read the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. Um, you read opinion from the Wall Street Journal type writers and the Washington Post type writers. Uh, you can go and read magazines like National Review who have more of a conservative perspective, but have a lot of good news and analysis of the news. You can also do the same at the New Republic or the American Prospect. So I like to read different sources. You mentioned cable news channels, and I'll have to tell you, Don, even though, as you know, I was on television for a long, for a quarter of a century off and on, um, I don't really watch television for, for significant news anymore. I just, it's just not, I, I think it is mostly people yelling at each other, which is not interesting to me. And I can get a lot more news by reading and by listening to the radio. I just find that. I just find that to be a much more efficient use of my time. I get some, I get more useful things. So that's how I do it. Um, I do have some newsletters that I subscribe to, and I would definitely urge people to look at whether in, in North Carolina, looking for North Carolina news or looking for national news, go to Substack, go to some other places and do some searching. You'll find some varieties of different sources. And for me in North Carolina, for example, you read the Carolina Journal, which I founded, which has more of a right wing. You should also read what used to be called Policy Watch, which is now North Carolina Newsline, to get a more left-leaning take. And those are both real news outlets. Diversify your diet. Good advice. And I would wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's uh, something that uh, people should really pay attention to. Diversify, diversify, diversify. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong. And uh, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast again, or as I said, share it with a friend. John Hood, we look forward to you coming back. Until next time, have a good week, everybody. 
Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.